Feels weird. Picking it up again. The legacy of that shield is complicated, to say the least. When Steve told me what he was planning, I don't think either of us really understood what it felt like for a black man to be handed the shield. How could we? I owe an apology. I'm sorry. Thank you. From Providence, Rhode Island, welcome to the MCU Diaries. It's a podcast dedicated to every Marvel Studios series on Disney+. So sit back, relax, and let's break down Earth's mightiest heroes. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the MCU Diaries. I'm your host, Blake Larson, and today we are talking about The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, episode 105, Truth, the penultimate episode before the season ends. And let me tell you, this episode was an, an odd step for The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, one that really surprised me with how calm and how talky it was. <laughs> very, very talky. I couldn't believe it. And I actually quite liked it. I, I There are some things that are, I think, a little questionable. We'll get into that in a little bit. But I think for the most part, this is a fantastic study on what these characters are doing and how they are changing at the same time. One of the things that are happening to our characters that make them worthy of our screen, make them worthy of our time. What is the force of change that we are witnessing? And of course, before we get into all of that, I want to remind you that you can go to maryandblake.com where you can check out all the great podcasts that we have going on over there, whether it is Outlander Cast or This Is Us Too or The Potterverse or Bridgerton with Mary and Blake. Uh, there, there are a, a, a million podcasts that are happening at maryandblake.com in addition to the blog version of all of the episodes that you're listening to for the MCU Diaries. You can read them all. Again, they're, they're all... Uh, they're all relatively the same. The DNA is all there, but uh, the blog version is certainly a, a tad different from the version that you're hearing here on the podcast, uh, as well as the Handmaid's Diaries, which is kind of like a sister blog version uh, of the MCU Diaries, where we're covering The Handmaid's Tale. And I think, to my recollection, The Handmaid's, Di uh, Handmaid's Tale will be premiering, I think, think from now, a week from now, which I'm very excited about. We'll be beginning our coverage there at maryandblake.com and, get, of course, get in touch with us at uh, all the various social media platforms, whether it is Facebook or Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. We're all there. Just look up Mary and Blake. And that's that. Let's get into the episode, shall we? That's right, we're talking The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, episode 105, Truth. An episode that actually starts off with quite a bang. 
but then again takes a methodical step back from the very intense action to allow our heroes the chance to either break free or remain uh, with the various truths that keep them in stasis. What do I mean by stasis? Well, that is when you either stay where you are because you enjoy the current state of your life, and that is your stasis. You are staying in one place. You are staying in one action. Or you're breaking free from stasis. You're changing things. This episode, though, much like the penultimate episode of WandaVision, again, it takes a deep breath before what will surely be, at least in the case for WandaVision, a bombastic finale. One could even argue that this episode takes the Joss Whedon farmhouse approach from Avengers Age of Ultron, where we take the time to see our superheroes living their daily lives while trying to cope with their past fights and the, f- and the conflicts that have defined them in the past. But it's also using that time to build the conflict that will be about to befall them in the future. Namely, the brewing conflict in the case of Avengers Age of Ultron, uh, the brewing conflict between Captain America and Iron Man, which would eventually give birth to Captain America Civil War. WandaVision, though, uh, was a television show firmly based in its abject functional weirdness, as we have discussed ad nauseum on the MCU Diaries. So I expected an unconventional storytelling narrative or structure or even devices from its narrative in WandaVision. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, on the other hand, is so rooted in its conventional MCU um, DNA <laughs> that it's it's really incredible that it devoted nearly half of its runtime to working on a boat, which ultimately has no plot significance to the rest of the story whatsoever. I mean, honestly, so much boat work. (laughs) I I can see why some people might laugh at the subtle flirtations between Sarah and Bucky, and they were certainly cute. Or be warmed at the thought of a community of people coming together to help solve the problems which plague Sam and his family. There's a a nice motif there of community mobilizing to help save its hero. Similar, if you recall, to the residents of Queens lifting uh, Spider-Man on their shoulders after he saves them from certain death on the train uh, in Sam Raimi's uh, Spider-Man 2. And... I like that motif, and while it's all well and good, I I can also see why some people would be incredibly bored during the boat sequence. Again, so much boat work, and so much talking. (laughs) Talking about why Bucky didn't use his robot arm to fix the engine. Talking about John Walker's discharge. Talking about the political policy about the GRC and how they're going to force refugees back to where they came from. Man, it's a lot. And I'm not saying I felt that way, but 
again, it was an odd choice to make such a muted episode of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, where normally they would a, a conventional story would take this time to build its narrative, build the momentum going into its grand finale. We take a step back, allowing our characters to the forefront. Part of being in the forefront here is actually the conversation with Isaiah Bradley. And once I saw this, once I experienced the conversation with Isaiah, my entire focus shifted from general boredom to genuine intrigue. And this happened because I realized that our characters all have to make a choice within the confines of this episode that will drastically alter their all of their respective futures. In other words, they have to choose to stay where they are in stasis, or they have to choose a fundamental shift in their actions. For example, Sam must choose if he's going to not only unseat John Walker as Captain America, but if he should assume the mantle of Captain America for himself. Bucky must choose to do the, the work, as Sam says, that it takes to finally make amends with the beast of the Winter Soldier that lurks just below his surface. John Walker must choose to move beyond his given title as Captain America, but also to recognize that he is no longer an agent of the American government. Hell, even our side characters must make a choice in their stasis. Sarah must choose to further invest in her family's future by not selling the boat, which has defined their family for generations. And Carly must choose to finally actively engage in outright battle against the GRC with all of her members of the Flag Smashers. These choices are all important, but for now... For now, though, let's stick with our main characters and their journeys of self-realization or actualization. We could quibble over how much time was spent at Isaiah's house, or whether or not we needed a half an episode of boat repair or a full-blown rocky training montage of Sam throwing a shield. Were some of those choices a tad indulgent? Well, perhaps. The main thrust of this episode, however, remains true nonetheless. There is a natural tension framed by the pull of our characters' individual pasts and the subsequent push to break free and embrace their future. Robert McKee, one of my favorite authors, writes about change in his incredible book, Story, Substance, Structure, Style, and the Principles of Screenwriting. He says, True character is revealed in the choices a human being makes under pressure. The greater the pressure, the deeper the revelation, the truer the choice the, to the character's essential nature. Re revealed through the immense pressure the plot has placed on Bucky, Sam, and John Walker, we learn an important trait each of them share to this story. They each represent specific appeals of persuasion. In other words, ethos, logos, and pathos, respectively. Walker has exhibited a tendency to react purely out of emotion. Thus, pathos. Someone who is represents, or pathos represents the idea of emotion and beliefs and acting on impulse. That is certainly John Walker. Sam has filled his life by talking people down from their moments of crises and vulnerability, and that 
makes his persuasion logos, one of logic and reasoning and using the word to convince. And Bucky, well, Bucky is a mix of both, falling prey to his emotion, but using words to escape his reality. He places his belief in Steve's, Steve Rogers, credibility, and how that validates his own existence. Bucky is therefore ethos. Ethos being trust and authority and definition in that trust and authority. And before we dive further into the veracity into each of the main characters' method of persuasion, let's let's begin with how they either embrace their respective stasis or how they choose to break free of their stases. And as I noted earlier, that begins and ends with Isaiah Bradley. Amidst the pressures of being jailed, losing his wife, being tested on, and all of the men that he helped escape imprisonment, Isaiah simply chooses to live a forgotten life after the government erased him. In, I think, what is the most powerful moment of the episode, Isaiah paints a very bleak picture of his life after Sam tries to make his story known. You think things are different? You think times are different? You think I wouldn't be dead in a day if you brought me out? You want to believe jail was my fault because you got that white man's shield? They were worried my story might get out. So they erased me, my history. But they've been doing that for 500 years. (laughs) Pledge allegiance to that, my brother. They will never let a black man be Captain America. And even if they did, no self-respecting black man would ever want to be. In order to survive, Isaiah wants to be left alone. His choice is to remain in stasis, unknown to the annals of history, which ought to be celebrating him instead of holding him hostage. Isaiah's static perspective, though certainly warranted given his treatment by detached government, continues to serve as a warning for Sam about what one can become If one follows the orders of a government blindly, the government who neither cares about their agents or what those agents must sacrifice to fulfill their service. Isaiah firmly believes it is not worth Sam's time to be Captain America. Because America will never accept a black man in that role. And under the enormous pressure of assuming the mantle of Captain America once John Walker has been dispatched, Sam could buckle under the weight that Isaiah projects. But he doesn't. In fact, what he does is exactly what Steve Rogers would do. Continue to fight. But Sam is not motivated by the same principles as Steve once was. Steve fought for what was right because, well, it was simply the right thing to do. 
Sam Wilson, however, chooses to become his own version of Captain America, not necessarily because it's the right thing to do, but because it is Isaiah's fear and sacrifice that motivates him to help realize change. After discussing what Sarah has interpreted as two separate battles, one for his people and one to save the world, Sam comes to understand that they are actually one and the same. Isaiah's been to hell and back. If I was in his shoes, I'd probably feel the exact same way. But what would be the point of all the pain and sacrifice if I wasn't willing to stand up and keep fighting? In other words, Sam's acceptance for his version uh, of the most famous Captain America line there is. I can do this all day. Sam must be willing to stand up and keep fighting. It's the same, but different. So Sam, because of this, breaks free of his stasis and desire to stay as Falcon, not only because Steve saw the good in him, but because he can stand as a beacon for what is right in the black community and in the community of the United States and America and general. He can help push through the sad reality that America would never accept a black Captain America simply by being Captain America, because he will continue to stand up and keep fighting, because he can do this all day. If this subtle transition isn't enough to drive the point home, there is quite a, a literal de-winging of Falcon by John Walker in the climactic battle between he, Sam, and Bucky. And while the wings being ripped off Sam's back may not be enough, Sam is actually given a chance to go back into his stasis of being Falcon by Torres. But instead of asking him to fix the wings, as Sam had done in the beginning of this series, Sam this time refuses the repair. Instead, he tells Torres simply to keep the wings. This serves as a literal physical choice Sam makes to no longer identify as Falcon. The indirect co-author of this choice, of course, is John Walker, as he's the one who <laughs> rips the wings off. And it's no coincidence that he rips Sam free of his wings of stasis, and there is actually some extremely clever framing from director Carrie Scogland uh, during the battle, which uh, she pits Sam against the implicitly supremacist version of Captain America and foreshadows the con conversation eventually with Isaiah, where Captain America's shield, not John Walker, but the shield takes up about half the screen and far off in the distance, preparing for battle, there is Falcon. It was smart to start off this episode with the fight we've all been waiting for. And it's certainly a visceral sequence with more incredible direction from Scoglin, but I dare say it was brilliant writing. It was brilliant writing because it gets this fight out of the way. And it allows the pathos behind the fight <laughs> and the consequences of the dissolution of the government's Captain America, in quotes, to actually stand at the forefront Instead of focusing on the physical form of our clash, our focus is actually tied to the reason for the clash. 
After murdering Nico, John Walker runs from his problem and maintains his innocence while trying to validate his reasoning for killing an unarmed man. Under enormous pressure, we now get to see Walker's choices. Those choices for were to kill Nico, and that choice has forced a change, but Walker's innermost desire is actually to remain in his stasis as Captain America. This is brilliant because right in front of our faces, we see our two ideals of stasis and change, both in the form of the stasis being John Walker and change being Falcon or Sam. They come to literal fisticuffs before our eyes. After a long and arduous fight where the shield is literally ripped from his arm, John Walker lay defeated and at the mercy of the American government. Despite his loss, however, Walker still balks at the change in his stasis when confronted by a panel of (laughs) old white dudes who run a country where a black man can't be Captain America. Refusing to take ownership over his actions as the head of the GRC, states the mandate that he no longer serve as Captain America Walker pounds on the podium with visceral emotion. Misunderstood the circumstances. This is not a negotiation. I understand. This that. is a mandate. I'm just asking to be heard. It is a mandate. I under. I understand that. I understand that. I live my life by your mandates. I dedicated my life to your mandates. I only ever did what you asked of me, what you told me to be and trained me to do, and I did it. And I did it well. You will be given an other than honorable discharge retroactive to the beginning of the month. You will hold no rank in retirement and receive no benefits. You built me. Senator, I am Captain America. You can see here that the pathos is brimming with tension. The pathos is pouring out of John Walker. He refuses to accept responsibility for his actions because the country built him. And even when the senator's response is a firm, not anymore, Walker ignores the consequences of his actions. And should he continue to operate under the moniker of Captain America? Yes, if he does that, he will lose everything, but he already lost everything. And he ignores everything as he walks out of the courtroom in a daze. Notice the next cut, that it's Walker's wife who gives him a way out of his stasis by visiting Lamar's parents first. And then and then they can build... Well, we don't know what they can build together. Because then they're interrupted by Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. And we will have more on her in a minute. 
What matters here about Val, we'll call her Val just for short, what matters about Val's inclusion here, aside from the obvious world building that the MCU is trying to introduce, is that Val is the vehicle in which Walker can remain in stasis. She tells him, don't worry about it. What you did was right. Oh, and by the way, don't worry about that shield either. The government doesn't own it anyway. There is a legal gray area. Which, of course, implied what we already know. Assigning the mantle of Captain America does not fall within the purview of the American government's mandate. As such, Val validates Walker's denial of his responsibility and the authority his commanders maintain over him. She gives him a way to remain in his stasis, ignoring his wife, ignoring the pleas of those who loved him most. And by the way, can I, as an aside, Wyatt Russell really impressed impressed me with this scene because he's phenomenal. He really is phenomenal in this role. And I have to say, during this podium scene, all I kept seeing and hearing was his dad, Kurt. (laughs) But that was a good thing. I wasn't looking at it like, oh, I wish this was Kurt Russell. I'm looking at it like, wow, this kid's got it. And he really does. Walker then even continues his stubborn persistence to Lamar's parents that night that because he was right in killing Nico as a result of Nico being the man who killed Lamar. We, the audience, have dramatic irony in knowing that it was actually Carly, but there is an unease about this scene because... It appears that we aren't the only people who don't believe Walker. In fact, it actually feels like he doesn't even believe in himself. And Lamar's sister, or maybe his wife, I'm not sure. There wasn't a real distinction there. At least I missed it. She is certainly off-put by Walker's random musings, and she is clearly unmoved, if not outright disgusted by Walker's pleas of repentance. It would be easy here to assume that John Walker serves as a direct contrast to Sam in this instance, choosing to stay in stasis while Sam chooses to move forward as Captain America, who doesn't have to be legitimized by the American government. But my my sense here is that Walker is better contrasted against Bucky. Instead of confronting his trauma head-on like Bucky does, John Walker instead takes the results of the trauma, that being the Medals of Honor, and actually welds them onto a new shield he crafts during the credit sequence. By the way, if you didn't see the credit sequence, check it out. I mean, it's it's a little hammy, I get it, but it is, I think, important to what this character is choosing to do. He takes those medals, the Medals of Honor, and he welds them on his new shield he has created one that is identical (laughs) to the captain america shield as such it's the trauma that drives walker's motivation and it's the trauma that persists perhaps in a heightened state because of the serum but it persists in keeping john walker from moving forward the way that bucky has chosen to move forward Yes, Bucky chooses to be free of his stasis as well. Well, eventually. 
Of course, we have Io referring to Bucky as the White Wolf. And that is an affirmation of Bucky's steps away from the Winter Soldier. But that isn't enough. The writers know that they still have to torture. Well, we'll put it that way. They have to still torture Bucky. And you can still sense that Bucky, as a result of that implicit torture from the writers, he wants to hold on to what has defined his life post being the Winter Soldier when he says this to Sam. Whatever happened with Walker wasn't your fault. I get it. It's just that Shields, closest thing I've got left to a family. So when you retired it, it made me feel like I had nothing left. It made me question everything. You, Steve, me. You know, I've got his, uh, got his book. And, uh, I just figured if it worked for him, then it work for me. Bucky looks back to Steve Rogers. He keeps looking back for that authority, for that credibility. He even looks to a book for that credibility and authority. Because if it worked for Steve, then it must work for him. But in a truly beautiful sequence, as they pass Captain America's shield back and forth between them, it's actually Sam who motivates Bucky to break the stasis, the same way Isaiah motivated Sam to break away from his stasis. Just in this time, it's in a different manner. Steve is gone, Sam wisely says. And this may come as a surprise, but it doesn't matter what Steve thought. You got to stop looking to other people to tell you who you are. To further drive home the point, Sam asks Bucky if he still had his nightmares, and Bucky smirks as he replies, all the time, which means I remember. It means a part of me is still there, which means a part of the Winter Soldier is still in me. Bucky has done what he thinks he can do to erase the Winter Soldier, but has given into the notion that he will never be free of his stasis. That is until Sam pushes him with a little tough love. (sighs) From a character who is based on the power of Logos, he says, you want to climb out of that hell you're in? Do the work. Do it. In his, his final gasp to remain in his stasis, the ethos of Bucky, the one who looks for authority and credibility from others, Bucky can't even look Sam in the eye as he makes his last appeal to Sam's Logos logic. I've been making amends. Sam's response is a perfect amalgam of what makes him the best Captain America, which plays to Steve's idealism, but remains steadfast and true to Sam's ability to empathize with his words, which, of course, is something he's been doing since we met him in, ironically enough, Captain America, the Winter Soldier. You weren't amending, you were avenging. You were stopping all the wrongdoers you enabled as the Winter Soldier because you thought it would bring you closure. You go to these people and say sorry because you think it'll make you feel better, right? But you gotta make them feel better. You gotta go to them and be of service. I'm sure there's at least one person in that book who needs closure about something and you're the only person who can give it to them. 
And while Bucky says there are probably a dozen people, we, as the viewers know, that one person that he's going to. And that is going to be Takashima, the man whose son Bucky murdered as the Winter Soldier. Bucky, at this point, recognizes the power of Sam's logos. And through his own ethos, Bucky finally accepts Sam's credibility as equal to that of his former best friend in Steve. As such, it's only through service and amends with Takashima, a man who Bucky befriended because he didn't have the courage to tell him the truth, can Bucky actually break his stasis of limbo between existing as the Winter Soldier and moving forward as simply Bucky. Each of our main characters have gone on the journey of accepting their stasis, or fighting to move forward in their characterization. Walker, as our man of pathos, wants to remain in the same, and reacts with sheer emotion to facilitate that inertia. Sam pushes strongly ahead to form an entirely new version of himself through the power of Logos, or the Word. And Bucky, well, he is our ethos, a unification of both, and a desire to stay inert, but also to force meaningful change. Three characters, three methods of persuasion. Ethos, Logos, and Pathos. All breaking free or remaining in their stasis. Time for Apropos of Nothing for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Episode 105, Truth. First, let's chat Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. <sighs> Yes, this is a really big deal, and not just because Julia Louis-Dreyfus is playing this character. She is amazing. She's a goddess. And if you ever get a chance, watch the show Veep. It is my second favorite comedy behind only Arrested Development. And trust me, Veep is very close. It is, it is just genius at its finest. Anyway... Julia Louis-Dreyfus, she is a perfect choice for, for Val. In the comics, Val came uh, into the story as an agent for S.H.I.E.L.D. In fact, she was so good at her job that she rose through the ranks very quickly and actually even had a romantic relationship with none other than Nick Fury himself. Later on, though, of course, as all comics are wont to do, they reveal the backstory, and they revealed that Val was actually a Russian agent with ties to Hydra, and she assumed the name Madam Hydra later on. It was actually rumored that uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus was supposed to make her first appearance in the MCU in the soon-to-be-released Black Widow, which actually was supposed to come out last year. There was supposed to be a big reveal in Black Widow, which makes sense if they continue to follow the storyline that Val was a Russian sleeper agent. But I don't know if they will continue that way or if they have done reshoots during the COVID crisis, if they are going to erase uh, Val from the Black Widow story and just use this as her introduction. Not 100% sure yet, but either way, she has made herself known in the MCU. At that point, when she was named Madam Hydra in the comics, she helped uh, form the Dark Avengers and the Thunderbolts, uh, two groups. 
which is much in the same way that Nick Fury assembled his team of Avengers. The Dark Avengers, or the Thunderbolts, they're groups who sent shockwaves through Marvel. They were a group of anti-heroes who served as a mirror, like literally a mirror, to the more traditional Avengers. There was... Um, a Hulk version. There was uh, eventually, you know, in in the comic book case, there was uh, Wolverine in the Avengers. He, uh, his son, was part of the Dark Avengers. Like they, they for every single Avenger, there was a mirrored Dark Avenger. Eventually, the Thunderbolts uh, and the Dark Avengers were combined into one. It, it's it's a long story, but here's the here's the interesting thing about the dark avengers and the thunderbolts they were populated by the likes of you guessed it john walker (laughs) he was one of the leaders the captain america version the mirror to captain america venom was in the thunderbolts the punisher jigsaw Electra, Deadpool, Crossbones, Yelena Belova, who was actually going to be in the upcoming Black Widow film played by Florence Pugh, uh, Norman Osborn, Helmet Zemo, and even at one point, the Winter Soldier. These are just some in the group, but these are actually um, the people that have been featured in the MCU so far, all with the uh, exception of Venom. Venom technically is part of the Sony universe though there are ties to um, the tom holland mcu version of spider-man with venom so it is mcu adjacent if you will uh, venom's inclusion but the punisher we already know who we've already seen him in the mcu uh, jigsaw we saw him in uh, the punisher series electra we saw her in the um daredevil series on netflix uh, let's see who else do we have here deadpool we know that deadpool is joining the mcu as ryan reynolds uh crossbones we know him that's frank grillo from uh, captain america civil war i'm sorry yeah captain america civil war and captain america the winter soldier norman osborne i'm sure is making his way into the mcu via spider-man and of course helmet zemo well he was in this series So the MCU, I think, by introducing the Contessa, is building to a much larger universe. And it's not a coincidence that Val is introduced in the same mysterious fashion as Nick Fury was in Iron Man. Keep this in mind. In this episode, I mentioned very little about Carly and the Flag Smashers. Well, that's because I think I'm officially over her and I'm over the group. The ending of this episode, oh man, it just feels so trite. She's, Carly, surrounded by all the Flag Smasher followers who are in New York and who have apparently just been radicalized out of nowhere. They, they get a text and they walk off to do her bidding? Are they all mindless automatons now? The show has done nothing, nothing, not one thing to earn this moment, or even Carly's radicalization for that matter. Unfortunately, as was the case in episode three, this happens because the show needs it to happen. George Batroc is back as the leaper at the uh, after his first appearance uh, earlier this season, and he wants to kill Falcon. 
Granted, we all know that he was referring to Sam, but will Torres finally make an appearance as Falcon with the repaired wings and help save Sam's life in his fight against Batroc? Well, that's an interesting idea. Oh, yeah. It's revealed that Sharon Carty, Carter is the woman who gives Batroc the notification to kill, I mean, sorry, to kill, to join Carly in New York. So is the show alluding to her being power broker? It feels like it. But if she were a power broker, then why is she helping Carly instead of hunting her down? It doesn't make sense. Zemo's fate is that he will spend the rest of his days at the raft. If you don't remember the raft, that I understand. Remember that prison that the Avengers were kept in after the events of Captain America Civil War? Yes, that prison in the middle of the ocean? <laughs> That's that place. That's the raft. I do like that Bucky chose to take the bullets out of his gun before he pulls the trigger on Zemo. It's a great representation of what both men want, but simply can't have, and they must live with the consequences. Part of me thinks Zemo wants to die. Part of me knows that Bucky wants to kill Zemo. But they can't have either. Though, Zemo's inclusion in this series, it disappointed me. It disappointed me because it bored me. There was nothing special. There was nothing unique about Zemo's presence. I was disappointed by how Malcolm Spellman used Zemo as a plot device. And not much else. Io calls Bucky the White Wolf, and while Bucky is certainly not the white wolf in the comics as the white wolf is, it was a boy who's playing, um, who's playing crash in Wakanda. Uh, and he was eventually raised by King T'Challa. You could argue that both characters share a respect and affinity for Wakanda and that the white wolf is the emotional end game for Bucky, a calmer, controlled, more actualized version of Bucky who would be the antithesis of the white, the, the winter soldier. But Io also tells Bucky to not return to Wakanda for a while. That sounds like a future plot point to me. And lastly, what's in the box? <laughs> what is in that box? I would love to know. Part of me thinks it's going to be wings, um, but just a Captain America version of wings. I, I, it's, it'd be interesting to see what the MCU chooses to do with uh, the box that uh, Bucky calls in a favor for. We'll see what happens. And that is that for this episode, ladies and gents. It's time to close it out. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the MCU Diaries. If you find that what we're doing here in the MCU Diaries gives you value, it's something that you enjoy, if you either enjoy the analysis or you learn or you just simply want to keep engaging, please do me a favor. Give me uh, a written review on Apple Podcasts or uh, even Facebook. Just go to Marion Blake Facebook. Of course, written reviews are great 
Not necessarily because they bump me up, that is not the case, but just because it helps other listeners see your opinion. Good, bad, great, or ugly, I want to know. I want to know because I want to hear your thoughts about this show, what I can do to improve, what I can do to keep doing better, or keep going. That is really important, not only for me, but for other listeners to help introduce themselves to what they want to listen to as it, as it relates to the MCU here. So please, do me a favor, give me a written review, whenever, whatever it may be, good, bad, or ugly, write it down for me. If you want to get in touch, you, you can simply uh, look up Mary and Blake on all of the social media platforms, whether it is Facebook or YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. It's all there. You can find all of these episodes on YouTube. You can listen to them there or, of course, your podcatcher of choice. And if you would like to continue to dive further into the MCU Diaries, check out the blog version of these episodes where we dive deeper and we dive a little bit harder. But as for now, ladies and gents, I'll see you next episode. <laughs>